This week on A Lively Experiment, a federal judge makes voting by mail a little easier for Rhode Islanders, but is another court challenge on the horizon. And Rhode Island takes two steps forward and one step back fighting the coronavirus, what it may mean for local businesses. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazenwhite, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us with their perspective, retired URI political science professor Maureen Moakley, Ian Donis, political reporter for The Public's Radio, and former state representative Dan Riley. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. It is great to have you with us this week. Well, the clock is ticking toward Election Day, and U.S. District Court Judge Mary McElroy did something this week that the Rhode Island Senate declined to do earlier this month. Make it a little bit easier. She eased up signature requirements for mail ballots. We'll talk about that in just a second. To set the stage for our discussion, our senior producer Dorothy Dickey went out and talked to John Marion, the longtime executive director of Common Cause, and Joe Larissa, well-known local attorney who is representing the Republican National Committee for opposing viewpoints on what this issue is. Here's a little bit of what they had to say this is a victory for both safe and fair elections. This is going to allow voters, particularly those who live alone, to safely vote in in their house by mail without having to have contact with uh, anybody outside their household. We're trying to um, make it easier to vote, but tougher to cheat. That's what this is all about. Um, there's no different difference between um, what's happening in this election and all the elections in the past. It's the same witness requirements. We're in phase three, according to Governor Raimondo. Um, so there really is no reason to uh, change the rules under the uh, coronavirus uh, exception. I expect in November, we will see three, maybe 400,000 people vote by mail in Rhode Island because they've discovered that it's a safe an effective way to vote at a time when we're told we have to keep social distance and wear masks. The Republican National Committee uh, at Tuesday's hearing indicated uh, that they were likely to appeal. It's possible that the Supreme Court could weigh in on this at some point, too. If this were to get to the U.S. Supreme Court, um, I'd be pretty pessimistic because there have been cases out of Wisconsin uh, and other states that have gotten to the U.S. Supreme Court this year. And uh, the court hasn't sided with the voting rights advocates. If it goes that far, it doesn't look good for us. What scares us the most is that voters are just confused. So we're hoping um, that nothing changes from uh, what the judge decided on Tuesday so that, you know, for the next uh, 95 plus days between now and November 3rd, there's one set of consistent rules that all Rhode Island voters uh, know that they can rely on. So, Dan, let me begin with you. You've had a legal eye on this, uh, both officially and unofficially. What's your view? And, and I found it interesting that they're both talking about potentially getting to the Supreme Court on such a short timetable. So weigh in and then we'll get into that. Certainly. And, and just in the interest of full disclosure, I am legal counsel of the state Republican Party. Uh, we were an R party in this case. We intervened last week with the help of the RNC and outside counsel. So I'm not uh, on the litigation, but I represent an organization that is a party to it. 
That said, um, look, I, I think as John Marion said, you know, we're in complete agreement. I think people should have consistent rules that are fairly and consistently applied across elections, and that's exactly what we're trying to do. The law clearly says there's a requirement, and mail ballots have been on the increase uh, for elections for some time now for reasons we can all understand. People are understanding the convenience that comes with voting by mail. And so Rhode Island voters have increasingly become aware of the requirements and how they can follow the requirements uh, as they start and continue, quite frankly, to vote by mail once they, once they start voting by mail. And we just want the rules to stay the same. The General Assembly can enter this process at any point. And in fact, they tried and could not reach agreement between the House and the Senate. So it's our position that the federal court shouldn't be intervening in this matter where it's clearly a matter, a matter of settled state election law that it's well within the General Assembly's power to change if they feel situation warrants. Maureen? Yeah, I mean, I, I understand your point, Dan. I mean, I understand the fact that we need consistent rules and I understand your concerns about mail ballots, but it seems like a sensible thing to do given this just this one time. Uh, I, I know we need consistency, and I'm, I'm tempered, my remarks are tempered by the fact that the Supreme Court has turned down these initiatives in two other states. So, uh, but I think for the sake of, given the virus and, and the, the idea that it, it may be escalating, I think it's the wise thing to do. I am concerned, however, about the Republican National Party weighing in on this because this is going to muddy up the waters of the election and you know it. In other words, if this election is even close, the whole argument is going to be about the mail ballots. We may not have a clear decision. And the most important thing is this, Donald Trump is not going quietly. And this is his first line of defense, even if, even if, is not close. He wants to become a cult figure, and this will be his entree back onto the public stage. I just want to say one other thing. Richard Nixon, the election of John Kennedy was very, very close, and there were suspicions that in Cook County, where Daley was the mayor, that the, it was fixed, all right, that the ballots came in late and so forth. Richard Nixon chose not to question this because he thought it would be too traumatic for the country. Donald Trump will not be that prudent. So there's my real concern. Go ahead and jump in, Ian. Dan referred to how the General Assembly could get involved and address this, and he's absolutely right. But let's remember the legislature has a vested interest in what's going on, and that could explain why the legislature has not interceded. The House agreed with Nellie Gorbea and her push to strike the uh, witness or notary requirements, but the Senate did not. The Senate is the focal point of a series of challenges by a progressive group, the Rhode Island Political Cooperative. So this might reflect strategic thinking by the Senate that they do not want to, that they would prefer to have fewer people voting. And it's also worth noting that the 
Rhode Island Republican Party and its argument reached all the way back to Lloyd Griffin, the male <laughs> ballot king for Buddy Cianci, way back in the 1980s, 1970s, as proof of wrongdoing and how the vote can be abused. I mean, yes, we do have to be concerned about the integrity of the vote, but I don't think there's a lot of evidence in recent history of male ballot tampering in Rhode Island. Dan, you want to respond to both of those? Go ahead. Well, no, I, I just say, look, valid points all around, but I think that the law in place has helped prevent a lot of mail ballot fraud. The, the witness and notary requirement is there for a reason. It's not there to hinder someone's ability to vote. It's to provide some semblance of a, of a check in the process to ensure that the people are in fact the, the correct people and they're voting once and so forth. And, and look, that's not to say we can't make changes and, and, and reforms to the system that can allow even more mail balloting, uh, mail voting by mail. And I think that's going to happen quite frankly because people are going to demand it. But that will involve conversations with how do we improve in-person verification for some voters at city and town halls? How do we improve signature verification at the board of canvassers and the board of elections levels? We've asked for these changes. We've asked Nellie Gorbay and the Secretary of State's office, listen, can we get training for the Board of Elections staff and signature verification since they would otherwise be looking at these? And we haven't even gotten commitments on that. So look, we're going to vote by mail. We're, we're going to have a lot more people voting by mail and that's not going to change, I don't think. But that doesn't mean we can't have precautions in place to ensure that the system works as it's intended. Dan, uh, Dan, just quickly before we move on, I found it interesting talking about a potential Supreme Court challenge. Clearly, you'd have to go to the First Circuit first and then go up. And, and the federal court moves quickly, but I'm not sure that quickly. The Supreme Court is not even in session right now. What's the likelihood that this would get that high and that they would hear something on a fast track? Well, they would hear a case on the fast track in a, in a case like this. And really, it's one of the few types of cases because there's an election and they have to act before then to create some some there's urgency and they would have to have some sort of decision. And in their case, they are going to weigh the fact that they would be asked to quickly weigh in on an issue that otherwise would be within the realm of legislators. This Supreme Court generally, particularly with voting issues, does not like to do that. And I think that was really the driving motivation behind the case in in Wisconsin, uh, and, and they're going to take likely take the position, we're not going to change the rules this close to an election. So I think that's what John Marion was hinting at, if, in fact, the, the appeal does go forward and it goes that high. Maureen, you want the last word on this? No, I mean, I just understand the dilemma. And I think, you know, I think it's great that we have the 20-day extension, which will alleviate some pressure. But my last word is I'm concerned. I think it's going to be a muddy election in any case. And that's unfortunate. All right. Uh, we found out on Wednesday that Rhode Island has a bit of an uptick. This is probably not a surprise in coronavirus cases. We have people all over the state out and about now as opposed to the lockdown of a couple of months ago. The governor, of course, used her knock it off again. And she's saying that we're doing too much partying. I'm not sure that this panel is doing too much partying. But point well taken. Ian, it's interesting because now the thought is, I don't never heard of a phase four, but she talked about we're going to stay in phase three and now we're going to reduce gatherings from 25 to 15. I asked her specifically about that and they said the contact tracing shows that. I wonder what this means for us in the context of, again, a lot of what's going on around the country at this point. 
Yeah, I mean, the challenge, of course, is that there's a natural human tendency toward complacency. We all know that Rhode Island has been doing a lot better than most other states. So people have a tendency to circulate more, get out more, resume more of their normal activities. And with that, we have seen a slight uptick of infections. And the coronavirus is not going away anytime soon. There's been some encouraging news on a vaccine, but we don't really know if that's going to pan out in a matter of next month or many months or a year. So it's really tough to be patient and to uh, observe many of the uh, requirements or or, uh, regulations that have been imposed. But, you know, that helps to explain why Rodan has done a better job. And if we're going to continue to do better, you know, people need to observe those things like social distancing and mask wearing. Um, I'd like to add add to that. The thing is that when the governor was talking about this, she talked about parties of larger groups of people. And one of the instances that she mentioned was a baby shower. Now, baby shower, there are a lot of people and they weren't social distancing and they weren't wearing masks. I mean, there had to be a pregnant woman there, right? And I mean, I find it, I understand that it's difficult, but we're hearing that not only this uptick, it's the the virus is not going away, but there's cautions that it could really get to a very more difficult level. So I think we have to emphasize the fact that people have this responsibility in, in, in terms of the community to, to, to pay attention to these rules. And the, the baby shower just blows my mind in terms of irresponsibility. Yeah, in the U.S. this week passed 150,000 deaths. That's a lot worse than uh, I think uh, most other countries. And it seems it was just not that long ago when we had one third that many deaths. And that underscores what a serious situation it is. Dan. Yeah, no, I, I think, unfortunately, as soon as the summer started and we, we did not see that, you know, real decline in the numbers that I think we're all hoping for, um, hoping that there was going to be some seasonal adjustment, I think that this was only going to be, uh, you know, a matter of time. I, I think Rhode Island is lucky. Uh, you know, anecdotally, I, I see a lot of compliance. I think the numbers would suggest that, by and large, if the governor can hold a press conference and really narrow down the specific instances where they think of have driven this rise in cases. I, I think there's a positive there that we generally have it as under control as we can given the circumstances. But you know, sadly, we were going to see an increase. I think as as has been the case uh, since this entire situation started, we have to continue to keep an eye on hospitalizations and 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 of course the the fatality number, which will be largely driven by hospitalizations, because that's going to determine. What can we really respond to? We have seen some increase. You know, it's still manageable. But that, I think, is, is really what we have to remain, uh, you know, single site focused on here. You know, as I was listening at the briefing yesterday, I had somebody text me. You can imagine the barrage of texts I get during the briefing. And they said, I, I understand the contact tracing is good. And Maureen, to your point that they got directly to the baby shower, somebody texted me and said, would you ever give the state information again if they know, if they can hone in? Does that have a little bit of a chilling effect that they're like, hey, we're watching you people? You know, I know in a good way, but I also wonder if some people find that a little big brotherish. No, this is a temporary thing. I mean, you you uh, you have to give your phone number, and it is we are in a very difficult, strange, and unusual situation. And I think it's great that they were able to identify these instances, so they have a picture of what's happening. And surely they're not going to 
these requirements are not going to stay in place or there would be a, a real difficulty with that. I think this is a temporary thing. All right, Maureen, let me stay with you. They uh, talked about uh, returning to school. This is going to be uh, a big countdown. Uh, the timetable is the governor wants everybody to be back. The goal is to get everybody back in school in some form or fashion. But I think that's beginning to erode a little bit. There's been some opposition. They laid out a timetable where they're going to be doing Facebook Lives. They're going to be bringing in pediatricians and educators. The one date that stuck to me is they're really going to make a decision by August 17th. I wonder, again, looking about what's going around the country, what you see as for a lot of you know tens of thousands of school children in Rhode Island as we head toward August 31st, whether getting into the class is really realistic at this point. Well, I mean, you know, one of the things I saw that uh, press conference, and one of the things the governor said is this is Herculean, but they're going to try it because it's it, the idea of trying to get students back is the best option. I have to tell you, frankly, I was very impressed between her comments and as well as the commissioner of education in the sense that, um, of course, they don't know everything. The fact that they allowed different superintendents to come up with four options so that they can pivot, the fact that there's a state mandate, but it goes, the results, or in other words, how you open goes municipality by municipality. Westley is different from Providence, that kind of thing. The fact that they've allowed $50 million to account for all of the um, extra expense given, you know, she hasn't even announced what's gonna happen with the, bu with the buses. And that's, that's a good start. I mean, it's very hard and it could change, but I was really impressed, especially in the question and answer period, where people ask these questions and they say like, well, we thought of that. And more other important thing that she mentioned was that they're not gonna mandate students going back to school. It would be a very bad idea. They're already uh, car, you know, resistance in terms of people getting in cars, resistance going back. So you'll have a choice. You can stay home. You can do distance learning. There'll be variations given municipalities. There's extra money. Teachers that have uh, underlying conditions can be reassigned to their home. Um, uh, you know, it's, I thought I was very impressed. And when I first heard about it, I was like, you, how can you do this? And I think it's worth a try. And I have to applaud them and the Commissioner of Education because they really have thought through this and thought ahead. Now, things can happen. It could all change. One municipality may have to pull back and go to a different system, but they have those plans in place. So I understand it. And, and you can push the date back. I understand it's really difficult, but I applaud the administration for making the effort. There's not a lot of time to stand up this effort. As you say, Jim, you know, the state and the governor and the education commissioner say they're going to unveil more specific details around August 16th, August 17th, with an August 31st start date for schools. And, you know, they, the governor expressed a lot of confidence that this will be safe, that no one will, no student will be forced to go into an unsafe situation. Sounds good, but getting it done is a lot more difficult. I think there is an understandable amount of anxiety on the part of a lot of parents, but at the same time, distance learning has been uh, a big challenge when parents 
have a lot of you know work and other responsibilities. So I think the governor's approach to get the kids back to the classroom for the most part is well-intentioned, but the proof will be in the pudding. That's a big question, Dan, because, I mean, you're a parent, your kids are a little bit younger, but I think of this, oh, we'll have the kids in two days and then they'll be out three days. You got two working parents in your family. How do you juggle that? Right. On one hand, if you can't completely go back to school, we haven't fixed the problem of parents not being able to completely return to work in the instances where they can and they're allowed to and, and they're able to. So, And that becomes a major drag on the economy. I certainly think that's a that's a, a motivation here to really get going in the direction of getting them back in school as much as possible. But I also think this is going to be uh, affected by the science, which is, as Maureen said, it, we're constantly learning more about seemingly every day. And at least in the last few weeks, it hasn't seemed to have been positive, particularly when it comes to uh, our better understanding of the virus and how it affects uh, um, children. And so I think that is going to start to affect decisions nationwide, not just here in Rhode Island. Hopefully we get news from the better that perhaps, you know, it, it doesn't have an impact on children like it could, but that could throw everything um, into a, a, a scramble um, if it's determined that really the kids uh, now are at greater risk than perhaps they were before. I think that's going to change a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of decision making. Ian, just as an aside, I know we've both covered the commissioner of education. We see now that uh, there may be overtures from New York to bring her back. I think she's pretty committed to what she's doing here. But just give me your thought about this snapshot. She started a year ago when the Johns Hopkins report came, you know, that deluge. And now she's in the middle of a pandemic. I think she I can you know, I sit there like 15 feet from her at the at the hearings. You can see that she's really passionate about this, but this has got to be wearing on her because there really is no playbook for this. No, there's not. And we know that the whole fundamental challenge of improving public education in Rhode Island is a big, big challenge that will take many years to make progress on. And it's only been made made more difficult by the pandemic. But I took note that Commissioner Infante Green made a very uh, unequivocal statement on Twitter yesterday that she is not going anywhere, that she is staying in Rhode Island. There was no hesitation or hedging on her part. And I think when uh, our friend Dan McGowan reported in the Boston Globe that New York officials are trying to recruit her once again, some people might have slapped their heads and thought, here we, here we go again. But Commissioner Infante Green, in her own words, made it very clear that she plans to stay in Rhode Island. All right, let's do uh, outrages, then we may have a few other little mop-up things. Maureen, what do you have this week, an outrage or a kudo? I have, if I have time, I'll do both. My kudo is for the Assembly and the General Assembly having passed the Fair Chance Licensing Act. Um, this is a, such an important piece in terms of criminal justice reform. And when you talk about systemic, systemic change, particularly as it affects minority, this whole movement is a really positive step in the right direction. Not only in, and what this bill says is after, under certain circumstances and under certain scrutinies, uh, someone that is released from prison, depending on what their crime was, have the ability to get a license to be employed as plumbers, electricians, uh, other, all, all sorts of occupations that they have heretofore been barred from or it's difficult to get a license. Carol Metz has been really good about this in terms of pushing this agenda. 
And, you know, and we're also in the process of rethinking uh, the criminal justice in terms of sentencing, where we're making less serious draconian uh, decisions about nonviolent drug crimes, particularly among the young. So that, and, and this is not just opening the doors. As far as I can see, it's a careful process. All right. Uh, uh, Ian, what do you have this week? Quickly, I just wanted to note the passing of former Paw Sox executive Lou Schweckheimer, who had been Ben Mondor's right-hand man in rebuilding the Paw Sox franchise, died uh, at a relatively young 62, a really good guy. My outrage is how the Internet has put conspiracy theories on steroids. You know, back in the 1960s, the uh, historian Richard Hofstetter referred to the paranoid strain in American politics. But now you put you have people putting out these kind of crackpot theories that masks spread the coronavirus or that 5G technology spreads coronavirus. People should really know better. It's easy to debunk any kind of suspicious claims like that. And but it's we're seeing, a you know, an unprecedented era of conspiracy beliefs. Dan. So my kudos is uh, football returning, at least hopefully returning. <laughs> uh, maybe not the complete and full New England Patriots returning, but at least hopefully we'll have a football season. Uh, unlike Ian Donis's favorite sport, baseball, which I certainly hope continues, uh, Miami Marlins notwithstanding, uh, hopefully we can bring back some sense of normalcy here with a semi-normal fall full of uh, Sunday football. That'd be great. All right, guys, we have about three minutes left. I'm curious about one thing that we didn't get through is Jeff Britt, the longtime political operative, uh, has said no to a plea deal, which actually put 18 months in prison for this money laundering charge. Uh, probably rightly so to reject it, whatever. I'm not his attorney. I'm just thinking for the, the crime and everything else. The backsplash is going to be on the speaker ultimately if this goes to trial before November. And Maureen, I, I wonder what you think about the timing on that and what the potential this could have on Nick Mattiello's future politically. Well, I mean, if this goes to trial before November, don't forget, he's got a formidable opponent in thumb. And the fact is that uh, it's got to make a difference. I mean, all the, the victories that he's won have been really close. And I find it hard to believe. I think it would be a real challenge for him to, to get reelected in terms of given his challenger and given the problem and given the publicity. Um, that said, uh, you never know. I mean, you know, we thought he wasn't going to make it the last time. But in any case, um, I think he's in trouble. If this, if this trial comes out, I think this is going to be create a real force for the opposition. And I think he has a chance. I think it's going to be serious. Dan, he, he wants a, uh, uh, a non-jury trial with Judge, Judge Procassini, which might move things along. Look, you know the legal system and, and the challenges during the pandemic. Do you think it's realistic that they could get this thing done in the fall if he wants to go forward? Well, I think it's possible. I think there are a lot of things that could happen that could push it off. And we could still have a bench trial, but it may not be um, uh, in, in time for the election. I think that, look, it's going to create unflattering headlines no matter what. There's going to be evidence that's going to be turned over to uh, Jeff Britt and his defense team that um, you know will make people look bad. There are all sorts of things that will happen the moment you don't take a plea uh, and you go to trial. But I think it's going to be a really interesting trial as a, just a legalist side. You have two former U.S. attorneys squaring off against each other in a relatively uh, untested 
uh, a legal type of case here that hasn't really been litigated before in Rhode Island. So I think it's going to be interesting. And frankly, I think it's the reason why he, he didn't take the plea. And I think that makes complete sense. Ian, you got the last 30 seconds. In contrast to Maureen, I wouldn't write Speaker Mattiello's political obituary. Incumbency brings a lot of advantages. Meanwhile, the really striking thing was that the plea deal was so uh, harsh, 18 months uh, of a five-year sentence for a relatively small alleged amount of money laundering. It almost left Britain no choice but to take that to court. And we have to wonder if that was Peter Nerona's intention, although we can't rule out the possibility he was trying to send a tough message as well. All right, folks, that is all the time we have. Ian and Maureen and Dan, good to see you again. And folks, we appreciate you joining us. Come back next week. You never know what's going to happen over the next week, but whatever it is, we'll have it covered. Join us next week as the Lively Experiment continues. Have a great week. experiment is generously underwritten by for more than 30 years a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders I'm John Hazen White jr. and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS